Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, Faculty of British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast. We're really excited to have May join us as one of the co-hosts for Faculty BC's podcast. I graduated yeah. from UBC Allard School of Law and was called in 2015. An interesting fact you might not know about me, and perhaps my only claim to fame, is that I can write backwards and mirror image with my left hand like Leonardo da Vinci. Our guest today is Parveen Sarah, and she's the Director of Professional Resources at Singleton Earhart Reynolds LLP. She leads the student program for summer and artling students, including recruitment, engagement, and professional development. She's skilled in helping young professionals develop and further their skills and has a broad range of experience within the legal industry. Parveen was the most recently one of our speakers on September 14th for the panel titled Navigating the Recruitment Process as an Asian Canadian Law Student, Putting Your Best Foot Forward. This episode is a recap of that event with OCI guidance and provides further background on Parveen's path to legal recruitment. Prior to joining Singleton, Parveen practiced at several prominent law firms in Toronto and worked as an advisor at a top Canadian university. Outside of work, Parveen is actively involved with the Canadian Bar Association as well as the Ontario Bar Association. She also volunteers her time in the community as an employment mentor for newcomers to Canada. Thanks so much for joining us today, Parveen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we always like to start off our episodes with an icebreaker question. Where is the first place you'd like to travel after the pandemic is over? Italy. Do you have any specific I, reasons? I just love the food and I'd love to take a cooking class there and learn how to make my own pasta and pizza. So oh, yes. largely food related. <laughs> yeah, my favorite city is Florence, actually. And I love the flea markets as well as the food and all that Italy has to offer. So I am hopeful that we can all get on a plane again. <laughs> Great. Diving into our first topic, we were hoping to get you to elaborate a bit more on your experience as a racialized lawyer as well as a racialized professional. So we were wondering what prompted you to switch from being a practicing lawyer to becoming the director of professional resources. And why did you decide to transfer from Ontario to BC? That's a great question, Fiona. When I articled in Ontario, I had a really great articling principle. He made all the world of difference in my life as coming out of law school, transitioning to a young lawyer. And one thing he did differently from the beginning, he really gave me a lot of leadership opportunities and the opportunity to have full carriage of my own files. Sometimes he would leave. So he would leave to his New York office and he'd say, run things here. And if anything starts to go wrong, reach out to me. So I was very quickly in charge of other law students, paralegals, our legal assistants. And I really started to enjoy the coaching and ment mentoring aspect of my job and just giving people tips on professional development. But I didn't know I, where I wanted to take that. I just knew that that was something I enjoyed doing. So I practiced for a few years. I went in-house for a tech company for a while. And then I saw the opportunity at UBCO, is, uh, that's where I worked before I transitioned into this position, mm -hmm. and that was for an advisor and career development coordinator. So I moved from Ontario to BC to take that job at UBC in the Okanagan. 
I loved it. I loved working with students. I loved doing the career development piece, but I wanted to relate that back to my legal career somehow. And then this position at Singleton came up and I interviewed for it and the rest is history. And I've almost been at Singleton now for one year. So did you do the OCI cycle recruitment last year as well, or is this one your first one? This would be my first one. Okay. How's that been? (laughs) It's been great. It's been different because it's online. I think the students have been really great at staying resilient and and learning how to interview online. It's completely different than interviewing in person. And I think they've done a great job. I can't imagine what it's like to be doing OCIs um, in the midst of a pandemic. So I have to say they have definitely been handling it and been very resilient about the whole situation. In your experience, how do you find having recruiters who are of different races, gender, cultural backgrounds affect the law firms and the law students? Yeah, that's another great question. It's really important at our firm that we do have a diverse interview panel. And the reason is, is it brings different perspectives and different cultural understandings into the recruitment process that you might not have if you have a more homogenous interview panel. And I'll give you an example. Recently, we interviewed someone who I found really downplayed his achievements. And he was talking about this very successful family business. And the comment he made was, I know firms don't really like family business because they think you just got your role. You didn't have to interview. And I stopped him right away and I said, well, that's not the case here. And a lot of big law firms started as family businesses. But I realized he was from a cultural background where that might be the case, where you might not think as highly as having a family business. That just might be a cultural thing. So that's something I understood right away. And I think from the candidate's perspective, he perhaps had an assumption of, how we evaluate candidates and their experience as well. So I was quickly able to correct him and and make him feel comfortable. And then he actually started talking about that family business a little bit and some of his achievements from that. And he had some really great achievements he could share. And I actually think he'll make a really great articling student wherever he goes. That's good to hear. And I think maybe coming from his perspective of things. He also thought that if he talked about the family business a bit too much, there is a general presumption that they might one day go back to take over or help with the family business. So I think maybe that was one thing that was also holding him back from sharing. So I'm really glad to hear that having a more diverse interview panel was able to make the candidates feel more comfortable and at ease with sharing things that are normally may not be as culturally recognized in a typical OCI interview. That's a great point, Fiona. Moving on to your expertise in your role as the Director of Professional Resources so far, what are some ways in which you think recruiters in a similar role could help facilitate greater inclusion and diversity at a firm? Okay, a few things. I think having a diverse panel helps. So one thing we do at the end of every day of interviews is we have a debrief meeting where all the panelists come together and we share our different perspectives. And having that dialogue is really important because a lot of different perspectives come in. And sometimes you reassess and reevaluate your opinion on things because someone shared a really great point that you might not have thought of. So having a diverse panel, having that time to communicate with other people on the panel The other thing we do before our interviews is I run a training session and I kind of focus what we're looking for in a student. So we have a standardized set of traits we're looking for. We have a standard set of questions we use. 
And I also tie in a little bit of equity, diversity, and inclusion training into that. So having that training session and just making people aware of unconscious biases they might have, I think that those two things are really key. And if you could talk a little bit more about the diversity of your panel for this cycle, for example, did you ensure that there was like a a roughly balanced ratio between gender, like between male and female interviewers, or was it more diverse in terms of in terms of race and ethnicity? So in terms of gender, yes, race and ethnicity as well, and practice experience as well. So we had some more junior people, more senior people. And then also we had This was more on our last interview panel. We had people that were maybe educated outside of Canada. So we had Mm -hmm. people who had gone to a Canadian law school, people who had gone to law school outside of Canada. So I would say we had diversity in, in quite a few ways. But also, as you asked, Fiona, we had the racial and ethnic diversity as well. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. And if I can ask a follow up question, I'm always curious. I guess this is for people who are foreignly trained lawyers, and they've jumped through many, many hoops, they write the NCA exams, and then they usually have to find articling on their own without the help of a local career office, which is incredibly difficult. So I was wondering, are any firms or if your firm is receptive to receiving applications from foreign trained lawyers? We are absolutely receptive to that, especially if they have experience. And quite a few of the lawyers we have right now that are senior associates were educated outside of Canada. That's good to hear because I remember when I was doing OCIs, there were some firms where I would see that they would only hire from one school, for example, like they would mostly be from Allard or like UVic or depending on the province in which you did OCIs, like they would tend to hire from select schools. And so it is nice to see that firms are becoming increasingly open to hiring from different backgrounds as well. Yeah, that's a great point, Fiona. I've actually, I've made it a point to make sure we're including all of the different law schools. We have a recruit for Toronto coming up for our Toronto office, which is much smaller than our Vancouver office, but we do hire 2-2L students, and we're going to be hiring 2-2L students for next year. In Toronto, we don't do the official OCI process. We hire right after the OCI process. Mm-hmm. We want, wanted to include Ryerson and Lakehead as well. The structure of their law schools is a little bit different. So I actually reached out to the career services offices there and said, hey, how can we work together? How does your summer program work? So we're very open to that. Another example is our 1L fellowship, which was historically only, well, we've only had it for about two years now, but usually we only opened it up to UVic and UBC, but next year we'll be opening it, opening it up to TRU as well. Mm, okay, yeah, that's great to hear. So TRU students, if you're listening, keep an eye out for that. <laughs> in addition to that, Praveen, what are some initiatives that you in your firm or that firms you see foster inclusion and diversity in the hiring processes? And which ones do you think are working well and which ones are not so much? I already talked about training, so I won't talk about that again. So just having training with your entire interview panel before you go into interviews. One thing we've started doing in Toronto is blind hiring, and we'll be doing that again for the upcoming recruit. That seems to be working well, but we've only done it twice now. So it, it's working well, but it's it's hard to say. Blind hiring, I think for law firms, is a relatively new thing. To, to So to assess whether it's working well, I think we would need a little bit more time. But I can tell you the two candidates we got for our last blind hiring in Toronto, they were fantastic, definitely from diverse backgrounds. So it seemed to work well for our Toronto office. And for the purposes of our listener, could you maybe just elaborate real quickly what blind hiring actually entails? 
Okay, so blind hiring, the way we did it is, and, and it varies from industry to industry. What we did for ours, it, it varies in terms of what's redacted from an application. So what we did for ours is we redacted pronouns. Some people sign Mr., Mrs., Miss. So we redacted that. We redacted names. We did not redact student clubs or languages spoken. We're going to be doing that for the upcoming one. So basically any identifying information is redacted from an application. Okay. And I've always been curious as a former like applicant to, to associate applications and student applications myself, how important is it uh, to have your address on a resume? Do you redact that? I would. If I was applying, I don't think you need your address on there. One thing I'll mention on that, Fiona, though, is if you're applying... I don't think you need your address out there, but if you're someone, say you're from Calgary or Ontario applying to the Vancouver office for a job, I would suggest explaining your connection to the city. So Mm -hmm. some people say my family's back there or my partner's back there or whatever the connection may be. That's more important than having your address on there. Yeah, I think definitely expressing interest. I think also because employers tend to know that it is common that students can apply to the same firm in multiple job markets. And so sometimes people will put an application into the BC market and then as well as the Ontario market. But of course, recruiters tend to talk not just within one firm, but also between firms. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. And it's very helpful that you should always try to explain the connection to the job market in which you're applying to. Right. Yeah. So the third question is more of a, I guess, a behavioral one. If you went through the OCI recruitment yourself, what are some things that you would have done differently now that you're on the other side of the interview? I would have been more real during my interviews. I I was one of these people that fell into that trap of being a little bit too scripted. And usually when you do that, it's because you want to make sure you're saying the right things. You want to impress the interviewers, but then you lose your personality a little bit. So I wish I had known that interview skill before and I had just relaxed a little bit and been myself a little bit more during the interviews. And I think that's something um, you work on throughout your life. You just become more comfortable with interviews and more comfortable being yourself when there's a panel of interviewers staring at you. So that comes with practice. But that is probably the key piece of advice I give is just be yourself. To build upon that advice, how can a student straggle that line of being yourself but still being professional? Is there any guidelines that you can give them as to how they can best do that? That's a great question, May. I don't think being yourself is unprofessional. So your question kind of presupposes like being yourself is somehow unprofessional. And I think that's something you'll see racialized students struggle with more because they'll say things like, well, is having a small business unprofessional or is is putting fast food experience on my resume unprofessional? And someone even said that to me during the OCIs. And they said, I think they had some sort of farming experience. And they said, I didn't know if I should include that because I don't know how it looked to the firm. And I said, well, actually, that's the first experience I had was berry picking. And I love that you included that because it shows your work ethic. So it's something I see racialized students struggle with more. So 
I think being yourself is professional over sharing is not professional. So when you start to talk about things that are maybe a little bit too personal for an interview, I think that's where the line comes in. But being genuine, so talking about real experiences you've had, real work experience, to me, that's not unprofessional. That's really good advice. Thanks, Parveen. So for this OCI cycle so far, what's the best answer that you think you've received? Yeah, and I think this is a question probably every student gets. But the question is, tell us a bit about yourself or tell us why you're interested in our firm. And usually what I get is a generic answer, which shows me people have researched our firm, but the part they forget is the link. So they'll say, I like that your firm has no fixed rotations. And I like that because I want to explore different practice areas. And then you need to make that link. So you need to say something like, as you can see through my athletic background, I'm a self-starter. So to have the ability to go out and seek out work in different practice areas would really fit well for me. So they forget to make that link. They'll usually give me an answer that shows they've done some research, looked at our website, which is not bad, but they forget to link it to how they'll fit into that picture. Right. That's a really good point. It's, I guess it's easy to convey the information that you've researched online, but sometimes the crucial piece is making that connection as to explain in the second part of it, why do you want to work here? And that's the key piece in any question. So another mm -hmm. question we sometimes ask is, tell us about a time you were working on a team and you had a challenge or tell us about a time you had to implement feedback. And, and the key piece that's missing is they'll give me a really good example. They'll give me the outcome. But they miss the key piece, which is to say how that will relate to their work at the firm and in this role. So they won't say something like, well, I had this, this research assignment. I got some really hard feedback and I was just working with someone who was a little bit of a difficult personality, but I scheduled meetings with them weekly to make sure I was on track. Mm -hmm. And then, and it worked out. We got the research project done. The, the piece they're missing is, I think that demonstrates I have great interpersonal skills, I can work with a variety of personalities, and being able to seek out and implement feedback is something I would do if I was a student at your firm. Right. Going back to the berry picking example, too, I think you, you would have to be able to make the link to berry picking and law. Obviously, yes, at yes. first glance, it seems like the two are so far removed and they have no overlap. But when it comes down to talking about your work ethic and what you can bring to the firm with that work ethic as a student and a future associate and maybe even partner, I think it is definitely something important to bear in mind. Exactly. So what's the not so good answer that you've received? Yeah, I actually really like that question, but okay. I, I do want to reframe it a bit. So I won't say not sure. so good answer. I'll, I'll say there's something I see a lot of students do wrong and particularly racialized students. And more specifically, I see a lot of women do this wrong and they just don't own their accomplishments. So I've been in an OCI interview where I had a really great candidate, great grades, great extracurriculars, and she had achieved this level in her music training that required hours of practice a night. And when I asked her about it, how she balanced this with school and her extracurriculars and achieving this level, and in, I don't know much about music, but I do know that to achieve this level in the Royal Conservatory of Music, it takes a lot of training. Mm -hmm. And when I asked her about it, she kind of just brushed it off. Mm -hmm. And, and I said to her, I said, you have to own your accomplishment a little bit. That's a huge <laughs> achievement. And I, I, I kind of laughed it off. And I said, I love how you're just so modest about it. And you make it seem easy. 
-hmm. But that's something I think it's in Asian culture. So it comes from our parents. I don't know about your parents, but mine do this. They always say, oh, don't be arrogant. Don't brag about yourself. But then to the relatives, they'll brag and they'll say, oh, my daughter's a lawyer and she's doing this. (laughs) And somehow that, that does set a precedent from when we're kids that we in Asian culture, especially as Asian women, we don't own our accomplishments as much. I find myself doing this. I've worked with someone who would post everything they accomplished on LinkedIn. And mm-hmm. I would think, well, why does this person do that? Some of these things are just mm-hmm. kind of, what I would say is it's mediocre things, but they're not. They're actually great achievements. And mm-hmm. it's something I've been doing wrong. So we've taken that sort of Asian mindset of, put your head down and work hard, which is also Mm -hmm. very important, but we forget to do the self-promotion part. And that's critical in interviews is that you have to promote yourself. And it's uncomfortable, I get it, but you have to learn how to do it. If I may, Praveen, how did you yourself overcome that? What were some of the strategies you used to catch yourself and say, oh, before you didn't post, but now looking at it and say, "Mm, maybe actually, I can actually post this. How did you overcome that hesitation? It was hard at first, but I put myself out there and I stopped worrying about how people would perceive this and how people would perceive of me. I know I'm not an arrogant person. I think that's what we worry about just coming from our backgrounds and then being women is we think, oh, I don't want to be arrogant and I don't want to look like I'm full of myself. And I just had to get over that. And I I realize I'm not an arrogant person, but you can be proud of your achievements and you should be because the person who is also applying for the same job as you is is promoting themselves and they're proud of their achievements and they're flaunting their achievements probably a little bit more than you. So I think there's a fine line between tooting your own horn in a healthy dose versus one where you're seeking constant external validation. So yeah, self-promotion versus seeking validation, I think are two very different mindsets. And so that's what sets people apart. Other than interview answers, what is the most thoughtful thank you email that you've received? And would you be able to elaborate on the importance of these emails and some tips you have on sending them? Yeah, that's another great question. I've received a lot of thoughtful thank you emails as well. Sometimes I'm just blown away by the things people say in their emails and and they're very sweet and kind. The ones that stand out to me are the ones where the interviewee remembers something and says, it was great chatting to you about the firm culture and how you had an ax throwing night and they remember something very specific. I think those really stand out. In terms of the importance of thank you emails, they are important. Don't not send one, even if it's short and sweet to the point. But if you want to be sort of next level, it's remembering something you connected with the interviewer about and thanking them for that. So some will say, I've seen ones to people I've interviewed with, and they'll say, I loved hearing about your journey as a lawyer from South Africa and how you transitioned that to the Canadian legal market. That's something pretty personal that the interviewee took the time to remember and write to you about. So those ones definitely stand out to me. All right. So keep them personalized (laughs) is what I'm getting from this. Yes. And then in your experience, what are some of the must-dos that for an OCI interviewer in from interviews? Be prepared. It's a short interview. If you have clear and concise answers, you're going to stand apart from the other interviewees. I talked about this on the panel I was on, and my recommendation was to go 
get a set of standard interview questions, whether it's 20 or 30. Every law is not, it is a separate industry, but in terms of interviews, interviews look the same in, in every industry. There, It's going to be some iteration of the same kind of standard 15 to 20 questions. So if you prepare for those 15 to 20, you're going to be able to, even if the question's phrased a little bit different, you're going to be able to have an answer for all of them. And my advice was to write the questions out, make some point form notes beside each question, and then practice saying them out loud so that when you're saying them, they're in your own words. It has a little bit of your own personality, and then it comes out of you very naturally. Yeah, I got similar advice when I was going through recruitment as well. And then on the contrary, you also have to balance it and make sure you don't sound too rehearsed so that when when you are given the keyword, you kind of just start talking robotically. So that's also something you want to be cognizant of. But I definitely agree that being prepared is one of the important keys to doing well in your interviews. Great point, Fiona. And so on the other hand, like, I know we've discussed a bit about what are some don't do's, but I was wondering if there's anything we haven't covered in our discussion yet that you'd like to cover. That's a great tip because there's something I see um, a lot of students do this. You have to keep in mind the OCI interviews are only 17 minutes. And a lot of students, when they're asked a question, they don't focus their answer. So you need to think about what's the point I'm trying to convey and they'll keep talking and talking and they just kind of, there's been a few where I can tell they kind of got lost in their own answer, which happens very naturally sometimes when we're talking. But if you're preparing for for an interview, you need to keep your answers clear and concise. And then I, I've had ones where a student's wasted a, a six minutes on just one answer. Yeah. And would you recommend the STAR method? in terms of answering your questions? Yeah, I talked about the STAR method again on that panel. That's a great way to prepare your answers and make sure you're on point and concise and you're conveying the message you want to convey in your answers. Can you elaborate on the importance of using first choice? And if so, when is a good time to use it? Yeah, that's another great question. When you've gone through a few of the interviews, I think you'll get a sense that the firm's really interested in you, especially if you start meeting more senior people at the firm and you start getting emails that say, hey, would you like to meet some of our partners or senior associates? So if you're meeting more people, that's a good sign. Now, firms, of course, they're not allowed to ask what your ranking of firms is, but you can, as a candidate, take advantage of that. So you're getting to to the end of interviews here, and you're getting good signs from the recruiters. You're meeting a lot of people. I would say it's a good strategy to convey that if you're really interested in a firm and, and tell them that you're their first choice. And for people, who are listening to this and haven't gone through the OCI cycle. So typically after your OCI interviews, which happen at your campus on a given day for Allard, I believe it's two days. Then if you're invited to a second round of interviews with those firms, then you'll be invited to uh, attend their infirm interviews, which is why it's called infirm week. And so typically infirm week is three days from Monday to Wednesday. And then Thursday is usually offer day. So while it's called an infirm interview week, it doesn't actually last a full week. So just some background context for that. Is it true that recruiters across the firms communicate with each other often? And if you're comfortable sharing, at what stages does this communication occur? They absolutely do communicate. I actually didn't know that this was a a secret, like a a hidden thing, (laughs) but that's interesting to know. We absolutely do communicate. So everyone in my role or a similarly named role across all of the firms in Vancouver, and there's a group in Toronto as well, we do communicate. We're all on an email chain and we do 
We do meetings as well. I think we have monthly meetings. And now during COVID, we've all communicated to make decisions on, hey, can we all agree in firms are going to be virtual? So these are the different things we discuss. Sometimes there's discussions around what you asked me about, what is your firm doing to ensure we're being cognizant of equity, diversity, inclusion initiatives. And sometimes it's just kind of more administrative things like, hey, how are you guys structuring your interviews? Are you sending emails out after each one? So yes, we do communicate with each other very regularly. We all bounce questions off each other. Another thing is when's every firm doing their onboarding and we share dates with that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're, we're in constant communication, I would say. <laughs> yeah, so it's more of a collective effort to make sure everyone's on the same page. Yeah, but what I will say is I think law students have this perception that we talk about candidates, but that's not the case. Anything I've ever heard about candidates, is it's really positive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes this some of the firms will have interviewed the same person and one of the students goes, oh, obviously picks one firm or the other. So there's a little bit of banter there, but it's not this like, gossiping session about the the students no it's more about how we're going to structure things and how we can evolve as a legal profession what initiatives are the firms doing and and just kind of keeping apprised of different industry trends and and what different firms in the city are doing I was just wondering for this OCI cycle because we are still in the pandemic what has the firm like what have the firms kind of decided on with respect to in-person events like typically you have receptions and dinners and lunches like that so I was wondering what's happening with that this year. I think all of the firms that are doing OCIs we've all agreed not to have any in-person events. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there might be smaller firms that are I can't really speak to those because we are going by the VBA guidelines and and we've also agreed not to have in-person events. Okay, I see. Moving towards like looking to the future, armed with what the lessons you've learned and the protocols that you've set for COVID, do you find that even after things will become normal, quote unquote normal, do you think that you'll incorporate some more video as part of your OCI process or do you anticipate that I'll go back to more in-person type events? Yeah, that's really hard to say, but that has to be a decision between the schools and the firms. So there's a lot of decision making that has to happen there. I think doing OCIs online works really well, though, especially if you think of traditional OCIs, you're in that weird room, you can hear someone beside you talking and it kind of screws you up. You hear someone beside you, they're laughing with their interviewers and yours is more serious. So then you start to think, am I doing something wrong? And and then just having to move all day around different places. I think that uh, video is, is working well for OCIs. So that's a component I hope stays virtual, but a, that's not my decision to make. But that's me uh, wishful thinking is I hope that component stays virtual. Yeah, I didn't even think about the fact that you wouldn't be distracted with noises from other participants near you. The challenging thing with virtual interviews is you miss out on on a lot of the communication. So kind of the nonverbal communication, how a person carries themselves. Sometimes that's missing. So that's tough, too. It's kind of a trade off. Mm -hmm, For sure. (laughs) But I'm hopeful that after going through the pandemic, the legal profession as a whole has really learned to use technology to our advantage. So I I agree. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
And I wanted to go back to something we haven't touched upon this interview yet, and that is the purpose of the blackout period. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what that entails. Yeah, the purpose of that blackout period is so that firms aren't kind of jumping ahead and engaging in recruiting activities for students because they're going to be interviewing them anyways. Historically, what was happening is firms were aggressively trying between the OCIs and the infirms trying to, you know, get students on early and, and promote their firms. So that's why we have a blackout period is to prevent that aggressive recruiting. It was getting really tough for students too, because they're still in school, they're trying to manage their course load, and then they have firms reaching out to them. So that was the purpose of the blackout period is no recruiting activities during those two weeks. And you speak to the firms during in firms. I see. And does that mean that you cannot reach out for coffees with anybody from the firm? Is that included in the blackout period? Students can reach out. So if they have questions about the firm, they are allowed to reach out. But we're not as a firm allowed to reach out to students to say, hey, I'd like you to meet with this associate or this partner. Okay, I see. So the blackout period is more for employers being refrained from contacting students, whereas students yes. are going to be the ones to do the outreach. Okay. Yeah. And the agreement is you don't engage in any recruiting efforts as mm -hmm. a firm during those two weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some small firms that don't follow the VBA guidelines and don't agree to them. So they're allowed to do that during those two weeks. But all of the major firms that do follow the VBA guidelines, we are in a blackout period right now. I see. And how long is it? Is it typically one week exactly? I think it's two weeks. So it started October 4th and it goes right until the 24th. So there is some time after OCIs where you can reach out, mm -hmm. but it's usually to cover that period between OCIs and infirm week. And thank you so much, Praveen, for all of the very, very important and valuable insights you give us. Do you have any words that you wish to say for students who are going through the current OCI cycle or as they become articling students? Yeah, I'll tie that back to something I mentioned before about interviewing, which was be yourself and be genuine and really own your experiences and share them and tie them back to how that's going to make you a great articling student. So that would be one of my pieces of advice, do something before the interviews that relax you. So whether it's Superman pose or playing your favorite music that pumps you up or just taking a few deep breaths, get yourself relaxed. Remember to slow your speech down because when we're nervous, we tend to talk a little bit faster. When we try to catch that, it seems like we're talking really slow. I don't meet many people that talk too slow. In fact, most mm -hmm. people talk too fast. So um, just kind of get out of your head about that. And, and my last piece of advice is if you're one of those people at the end of OCIs, maybe you didn't get a call this week, you don't get an offer at the end of the week, don't panic. I've been there. It worked out. Your path might look a little bit different than what you expected, but don't panic. I do believe life usually has you right where you need to be. And every situation you're in is a chance for you to grow and improve yourself. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. I absolutely agree. <laughs> 
And as you mentioned, even your Toronto office, you tend to do the hiring after the OCI cycles. And so even if you're not able to land a position through the OCI cycle, there's a lot of other opportunities that follow immediately. And if not, there's tons of internship opportunities. And if not, there's still the articling recruit a year out from now. And so yes, hope is not lost. And there's always more opportunities to keep trying. So don't give up. I think people forget laws like any other industry. So if you network and and put yourself out there, share your resume around, it's not you get a job through this or you're you're defeated forever. No, you might just have to get a little bit creative. And I talked about that on our panel, how I found my articling position by literally walking into firms with my resume in my hand. (laughs) And I'm at the time, I wasn't grateful for that. But now I'm grateful for that, because that really made me put myself out there. And I learned so much about myself. And whenever I'm in a challenging situation, I say, look at what I got, look at what I went through. And I'm sure we all have something in our life that we've overcome and and we can look back and say, hey, look at what I overcame. Why am I afraid of this now? So, but it's sometimes just reminding ourselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. The importance of networking cannot be underestimated. I actually have friends who initially did not receive an offer through OCIs, but because they made such good connections with the recruiters and the lawyers at their firm that they were later offered an articling position. And with firms hiring needs, they change all the time. Sometimes people don't accept the offer to come back for articling due to personal reasons, but capacity always changes on the firm's end. And even with COVID, we thought that a lot of firms might slow down but surprisingly it was the busiest year for a lot of firms and I've also heard that a lot of firms have decided to increase the number of students that they're hiring so just keep at it with networking if you're listening and you can never be harmed from talking to too many lawyers and so you never know who you might end up crossing paths with in the future and that one connection might lead you to an interview and potentially a job down the line so that's a great point Fiona so um I've had that experience here. We've had students apply to our 1L fellowship. They didn't get through, but now they've applied to us for OCIs. And I know they're great candidates. And now they stand out even more because they've been persistent and really shown an interest in our firm. And the same thing with associates. We've had people go through and I know them because they've reached out to the firm. And now we have some associate hiring needs and they really stand out to me. So keep networking, keep going with the firm, as you said, Fiona, and keep trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely agree. (laughs) Thanks for working with me. Thank you so much for your time and your very wise words. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into the Faculty BC podcast. Visit our website at facultybc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at FacultyBC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facultbc.ca.